Lord, we so, we so look forward to that moment when we are in your very presence proclaiming how great you are face to face. But Lord, what a privilege it is now to proclaim that very truth, how great you are. Because Lord, we have all experienced your greatness, your love towards us, your amazing grace your tremendous mercy, your your outpouring of your blessing on each one of us. Lord, you truly are great. Words fail us, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your desire for us to draw even closer to you now, to understand more of who you are. And Lord, our desire tonight is to hear from you, from your word. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us. Bless our time in your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we're seated or say hi to everyone together tonight, I don't know if you're aware, if you've heard, but um, down in Cortessa and Waddell, there was a, a child abduction this morning, um, a little girl taken off of her, her tricycle, and um, I don't know a whole lot more details other than they, are, they have a command post set up down there and everything, but we, let's join together and pray, seek the Lord together on, on behalf of that entire situation. Lord, we understand that we live in very dark times. And Lord, we don't know much of the details right now, but we know you know every detail. You know exactly where that little girl is. And Lord, we pray, first of all, that you would just comfort her, that you would wrap your arms around her. No doubt she is very scared. Lord, I pray that you just flood her with your peace. Lord, for her parents, let them to feel your arms around them. Give them peace and perseverance in this very difficult time, very difficult trial. And Lord, I I pray right now that you would overwhelm whoever it is that took them, took her. Lord, that you would just overwhelm them with your presence and drive them to their knees in repentance, Lord. And that they would, that they would return that girl. Lord, even as we meet here right now, I pray that as as our prayers go up to you, Lord, that you are moving supernaturally through this process, and Lord, that you reunite that girl with her family this evening. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand real quickly, say hello to those around you tonight, and take out your Bibles. As you're grabbing your Bibles, please open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. A uh, quick announcement. Uh, for those of you who come regularly on Wednesday nights, we need a couple of, of ushers. 
uh, to help in assisting with a couple of things on Wednesday evenings. So if that's something that you'd be interested in helping out with, it um, doesn't have to be an every week thing. It can just be a, you know, every other week, once a month, however that might work. We need a couple and see if you would see Rick back in the back there. If you don't know Rick, he's the, the guy with the bald ridge back there by the door. <laughs> My bald brother. Second Samuel chapter 6, we continue to look at the life of King David now as he has been recognized. We saw last week the entire nation of Israel now has recognized David as their king. And we mentioned last time that for the first time in the history of Israel as a nation, they have now taken and occupy and hold Jerusalem in, in their, as part of their country. For the, long, for the time up until this point, they were never able to take Jerusalem, and we see that now, and becomes known as the city of David, and David moves his, the, the capital there, and we're gonna see now as one of his first acts that he desires to do is to bring the Ark of the Covenant then to Jerusalem, not only to have it be the political center of the country, but also the center where, where the religious center will be, where the worship of God will be centered in Jerusalem. That is, that is David's heart. And I'm not one to normally title my messages or the things that I share. I, I'm not clever enough to come up with those. I just... 2 Samuel 7, 6 and 7 or whatever. But today, if I was going to, as we go through, Lord willing, two chapters, 6 and 7, I would title this, When God Says Woe and When God Says No. We're going to look at two instances in David's life here that as we look at them from the beginning and at the surface, we're gonna, we would all agree that these are good ideas. That, and we don't even question his heart behind it at all. He has a heart. We know it's a heart, a heart after God's own heart. And his desire, I, I believe in both of these instances, I feel very confident in saying that his desire is nothing but pure. That his desire is to honor God and to glorify God. I was reading in, in some commentaries uh, that in one of them even asserted that he believed that David's heart would have even been more to be the priest, high priest, instead of the king. That was his really, his heart was to, to worship God and to glorify God. So as we look at this, at these two stories, that, that his heart is in the right place. He's, he's desiring to do the right thing. But as we go through this, we need to understand a very important point for even us as Christians. It's not enough to just do the right thing. We have to do it the right way. Our, our motives and our methods must be right. The world looks at things and they would say you know, that the ends justify the means. You've probably heard that many places over and over, that it doesn't really matter how you get there as long as you get there. And if the end is good, even if you have to cut a few corners and that type of thing to get there, the ends justify the means. There, there's never an instance of that when we're, we're dealing with holy, almighty God. The ends never justify the means. The, the means need to be good as the end is good. So we pick up here and we see chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him 
to Belay Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Again, we see David's heart now is to go get the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant then was where God promised to be and where he would meet with the, with the people, that, was, that he was enthroned on the, on the cover that between the cherubim. That is where his holiness was, was, was dwelling. And his desire, again, a great desire, was to then bring now the Ark to Jerusalem. Now, if you haven't been with us as we've studied through 1 Samuel, you might wonder why in the world is the ark where it is today? And we see that back in chapters 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel. Back then, before King Saul, the first king, Eli was the high priest at the time, and his sons were Hophni and Phinehas. And they were wicked men, as if you remember that part of the story. And the children of Israel had lost a battle to the Philistines. And they, they said, well, if we're going to go back out into battle, let's take the ark with us, like almost like a lucky rabbit's foot. Let's take that into battle. And they take it in, and they're cheering, and all of this stuff is going, but they're defeated again, and the Philistines capture the ark. The, the Philistines take this trophy, and they put it in, the, in the, the temple of their god, Dagon, and as the story tells us, the, the, they come in the next morning, and the big statue of Dagon has fallen down in front of the ark. And I figured, well, that's weird, so they stand it back up, and the next day they come in, and the, the idol Dagon is again back down on its face before the ark, and they're going, Dagon, what? <laughs> what is going on here? And they, they, they realize through all of this that they have something that they have no idea, the power. And bottom line, they realize this after the, the Lord strikes them with, with disease and, and with boils and, and these tumors and these other things. They said, we got to get rid of this thing. So they put it on, an ar- on a cart and they send it out back into Israel. And it goes to a town called Beth Shemesh. And the people there are rejoicing because here's these, these two oxen pulling this cart and the Ark of the Covenant is on it and they're rejoicing, but they made the mistake of looking inside of the Ark and the Lord struck many of them dead there and they're like, okay, this is way too much for us. So they call the, the, the people at kiriath Jiriam, and they say, come and take this. And that's how it ends up here in the house of Abinadab. It tells us here in our Belay uh, Judah in verse 2, that is Kiriath Jerium. This story takes place 70 years before what we're looking at today. So for 70 years, the ark has been in this household here. And David, now king, says, we're going to go get the ark and we're going to bring it back to its central place of worship. And again, his heart is in the right place. His heart is saying, let's do this thing. The problem is they're doing it the wrong way. And it tells us now in verse 6, 
but. Now, whenever we see but, that's something that should always draw our attention to it because, again, everything sounds great. Everything looks great. It's a new cart, for crying out loud, and they're going in front of it, and they're singing and dancing and celebrating, worshiping God. And again, I have no doubt that the worship was sincere and heartfelt, but there's a big problem. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Wow. Okay. If we don't have any other information about this, we might think, what in the world is going on with that? It tells us now that the, they're transporting the ark on this cart, and the oxen somehow stumble and the, ark, the cart is shaken, and the ark is going to fall off of the cart. And Uzzah, this man, reaches out and grabs a hold of the ark to keep it from falling off. And it says that God strikes him dead. And notice it says, for his irreverence. What does it mean, his irreverence? Well, if we look back in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, God is giving the commands to the the children of Israel, when the ark is first made, the tabernacle is first set up, and he's talking about how you transport the tabernacle and the ark. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 4, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that the sons of Koath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Koath are to carry. The ark was, create, was made with, with loops on the side that these, these staffs were stuck through, and then they were to, it was to be carried. Four priests were to carry the ark, never touching the ark, but carrying it with these staffs. In chapter 7 of Numbers, it tells us a little bit more as we're talking about the transporting of this. It says, so Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. They were the ones who took the fabric of the tabernacles, the walls and the covering for the tabernacles. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service under the directions of Ithamar, the sons of Aaron the priest. They were the ones who carried the, the boards and the pillars of the tabernacle. They got ark, uh, uh, carts and oxen to carry theirs. But, he says in verse 9, he did not give any to the sons of Koath because theirs was the service of the holy objects, including the cart, they carried on the shoulder. So their role, they had to carry the objects. And the ark specifically, again, could never be touched. God said, if you touch it, you die. And so they they would carry it on their shoulders. Now, just looking at this, and again, as I'm remembering through this, going through this before, my thought goes immediately to that idea, isn't it amazing that God would use any of us in his service? That he would call us each individually and give us assignments to do? And our first reaction would be, thank you, Lord. But what if then we see somebody else that God has called to do something, and we say, well, their job's a whole lot easier than mine. They get carts. 
You mean I ha- we have to carry this? Understand that they carried these, the, these objects for a long ways, and the ark wasn't light. It was made out of gopher wood, completely encompassed with gold. It had the, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets inside. I don't have any idea how much it weighed, but it wasn't light, and these men had to carry it. And I'm, wait a second, they get carts, and we, we have to carry. That's not fair. <laughs> but that's what God said. And where God commands, where God leads and directs, he equips those to do it. You've probably heard it said, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And if God calls us to do something that we would look at as extremely difficult or even impossible, if we step forward in faith, he will equip us. We see here that they, they choose to put the, the ark on a cart. By the way, where do you think they got that idea? From the Philistines. They're the ones who sent the ark on the cart to begin with. And they're, they well, that's how it got here. That's a great idea. You know, why didn't we think of that? We'll, we'll, we'll do what the world does. But, you know, it tells us that in that we just see that the, the oxen stumbled You know, there's not a single record in the word of God that anyone who was carrying the ark as it was supposed to be carried ever stumbled. They never, it's never recorded for us that they grew weary and fell down. Not even when they came to the the shores of the Jordan River when it was overflowing its banks and God said, step in. The priests were the first ones to go that were carrying the ark and he said, you step in. He didn't say wait until the water stops and step in. He said step in while it's in flood stage. And it tells us that when they did in obedience, God backed up the waters and they walked through on dry ground. When they were walking around the city of Jericho, walking around the walls with the warriors, their enemies all around, not one of them hit by an arrow, not one of them stumbled as they did it. When we... When we take a look at this, we see that this man, either he should have known and he didn't, or he knew and he did what he should never have done. He reached out his hand and touched the ark. Now, there are a lot of different things that we could look at again, but it says irreverence. And when I think of that irreverence, what is irreverent about touching the holy ark. I mean, again, perhaps his motives were pure. He doesn't want the ark to fall in the dirt or in the mud. But what a, what a horrible assumption that my unholy hand would be cleaner than that dirt. That dirt is doing exactly what God created it to do. It's dust when it's dry, it's mud when it's wet. It never, it's never once done anything other than what it was created to do, yet my hand, often, my, in, in our flesh dwells no good thing. There's, we have tremendous responsibility with what we've been given. Jude, Jesus' brother, records for us 
in verse 3 of his short letter. It says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I found the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which once for all was handed down to the saints, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. And he goes on from there. And he says we are to contend earnestly because certain persons have crept in. Yes, certain persons have crept in, but you know what also has crept in? Certain attitudes, certain ideas, certain programs, certain methods have crept in to where taking the, 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 what has been given to us and entrusted to us, and we somehow think that we take worldly things and worldly ideas and we're gonna, we're gonna make what God has given to us better by worldly methods. We have an amazing responsibility. We have tremendous, tremendous gifts. I don't think oftentimes we give enough thought to the amazing truth that we've been entrusted with, the simplicity of the gospel. The fact that, that God says, you just tell him my word because he promises that his word will not come back void. His word will not come back empty without accomplishing what he sends it out for. But somehow we feel in our, in our way and in our time, we got to somehow dress it up and doll it up and, and change it and shift it and, and use worldly methods in order to reach the world with it. And God says, no. Colossians chapter 2 Paul writing to the church in Colossae, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have had on, on your behalf and for those who are in Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's where it is, in Christ." All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, not what the world has, nothing else. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. That is the gospel. I say to you that no one will delude with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in the body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We look at this and we can say, man, that's, uh, that's serious business. But this is serious. These are, these are, there's eternity at stake with this. And we see, I, I think it's interesting, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon. What happens at threshing floors? Students, what we've been going through, what do they do at the threshing floors? They separate the wheat from the chaff, Right? And God's going to do some separating here. When God says, whoa. It tells us that David, verse 8, became angry 
because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David's initial response is he's upset with God. He's upset over all of this that has happened. No doubt, again, going through his heart, God, I, want, I was doing the right thing. I, I wanted to glorify you. Look at all of these people that I brought out to be a part of this. Look, we were singing your praises. It, it, it all looked good. We were all in agreement. Problem is, they didn't check with God. <laughs> they didn't seek him in this. They just assumed that since, man, that we're going to bring it to Jerusalem, all of these things, and, and the, the ends will justify the means. We see he's upset with God. Then verse 9, so David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. How do we handle when God says woe to us? moving along with some things, even, even thinking that things are, that we're doing the right things. And God says, whoa. Sometimes it might not even be because of, of something that we might initially see as something that is wrong. And we might say, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. And our first response, it might be to be upset with God. I won't ask you to raise your hand. You can raise it in your, in your heart if you want to, but I will. There's times I do. I say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. And the, and the problem then, if we let that go too far, we can do what David did and withdraw. All right, I tried. I, w- I was going to do it. I'm just going to go back to the way, way things were. Praise the Lord, God doesn't leave us there. <laughs> and he doesn't leave David there. We see in verse 11, Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. We don't know much about the house, but we know kind of what houses were like back then. And Obed-Edom, probably not a a, a super wealthy person. So here's the ark. What are you going to do with the ark? Put it in your living room, probably. (laughs) Three months, the ark is in the living room. What would you do if the Ark of the Covenant was in your living room? Let me ask you, would you watch different things on TV? (laughs) How would your conversation with your spouse go in the morning? How would you talk to your children? would, Would things change? What did the Ark of God represent? The presence of God. I pray the Ark of the Covenant is in your living room. If you're believers, it is. The presence of the Lord is there. I'm going to go home and delete all of those things you've been recording. And, and, um, <laughs> just kidding. Verse 12. Now it was told King David saying... The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. Somewhere in verse 12 from when he heard 
about what was going on in the end of verse 12 where he goes and he gets the ark with gladness, something changed in David's heart. That switch that gets turned, and, and again, if you've been through those times with the Lord, you know what I'm talking about, where the switch goes off, where all of a sudden in your very conscience and in your soul, you realize that this isn't a God problem, this is a me problem. This is a my heart problem. This is, this is something that I need to investigate what's with me because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What changes is me. So something happened in that time frame. And in First Chronicles, we also have the record of these same stories. We'll probably take us a little while to get there when we're going back through them again, so I'll jump up here real quickly, because it does have some information that David, a conversation David has with the people before they bring the ark. It says in verse 11 of chapter 15 of First Chronicles, then David called Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemai, Elil, and Aminadab, and he said to them, you are the heads of the fathers, households of the Levites, consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses commanded, according to the word of the Lord. This time, the reason his heart is filled with gladness now is because he sought the Lord. And he went to the word of God. And he said, "This we are to honor God in everything that we do, in every step we take, following his word. And with that, again, the joy of the Lord, no doubt, flooded into his heart. And it says they brought up the ark with gladness. And so it was, verse 13, when the, ark, when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. Again, now sacrifices there too. Sacrifices speaking again of, of consecration and the covering over of sin and understanding that we are sinful and he is a holy God and the fact that he has, he has agreed even to have his presence with us is a blessing beyond our possible understanding. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. David humbles himself. He takes off his kingly robe, and he, and he dances before the Lord as anyone else would. He's no longer higher than anyone else. Before the Lord, we are all equal. And he's dancing before the Lord with all his might. And again, just his, I can only imagine his heart just bursting out of him as he's doing this. And that type of worship is contagious. No doubt all of the people getting caught up in this glorious thing now. So David and all of the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Verse 16, then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. Michael, the daughter of Saul, the first wife of David, we saw that last week, that that was the, one of the conditions that bring everything together was that Michael is returned to him as his wife. And so she is now in the, back, back at home, and now this, this procession is coming, and she sees David without his 
kingly garments on, dancing and praising God, and it says that she despised him in her heart. Critical, bitter. So they brought, verse 17, the ark of the Lord and set it in place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. So David prepared a place, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord, just as was commanded. The burnt offerings for consecration, the peace offerings were those that were brought where, where a, the, the, the fat portions were offered on the altar, burnt up for the Lord. Then the, the priests got their portion, but then an, other portions went to the people. And it was, a, it was designed around fellowship with one another and with the Lord. And so David, this consecration and this fellowship when they, David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each. Then all the people departed each to his house. A massive celebration. All of them blessed, all of them enjoying the, the fellowship with the Lord and with one another and then going home. In verse 20, but when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Quite a greeting. <laughs> Mocking. David, again, very critical. And again, critical of what? Critical of his humility, critical of his unabashed worship of God. Sometimes we have to be careful that we don't judge the way other people worship. She looks at David and is very critical of how he worships. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his household. Now, this is before David's son would write a gentle word, <laughs> stifles an, uh, an argument. <laughs> he responds, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this, and I will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. He said, I didn't do this for anybody but God. Again, she's judging his motives. She's judging everything about it, picking it apart, and notice what happens to Michael. Michael, the, son of, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Bitterness and a critical spirit leads to barrenness, leads to a lack of fruit in our lives. If we have a critical spirit, if we're judgmental, if we're bitter towards others, God can't use us to produce fruit. And we see that this, she, she never was able to pass on a child. There was no, no child born to her and to David. 
So we see in chapter 6, when God says, whoa, we need to, we need to understand, see in that the lessons that, that, we, that we learn from that, that, it's, that it's, it's never a God thing, it's always an us thing, that we need to check our hearts and seek the Lord as to why it is that he's, he's stopping us mid, midway in something. Make sure that, that the methods are also pure, not just the, 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 the mood or the desire. Chapter 7, then it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. David no, no battles, no wars going on at the time. There's peace at this time in the land. And David's sitting in his castle, and he's overcome with this feeling that I'm in this beautiful castle that's been built with, with um, items that have been in, imported from other places, this beautiful place. And he says, but God's dwelling in a tent. And he, something, he says, that's just not right. Something We need to build, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan the prophet, and I do think, that's, that's great. David has, has, he's surrounding himself with good people. He's got, he's got a prophet of the Lord with him, and he's, he's sharing this with him. Now, Nathan says something initially that we all need to be careful of, even if something sounds like a great idea. Again, great idea, but they didn't seek the Lord first. Nathan spoke without seeking the Lord, even if it sounds like, man, this is a can't-miss thing, and it will bring amazing glory to God. We need to seek the Lord. Nathan initially tells him, go do whatever in your heart, because God is with you. But notice what, it, what happens next. But in that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all my sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from holding the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of all of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and, and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly." Even from the day that I command, ju commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever." I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. 
but my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So Nathan, the Lord speaks to Nathan that evening, and he says, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> it's not my desire that David build me a house. He says that, that yes, there will be a temple built, but David's son will build it, not David. And before we, we move on to what our reaction when God says no, notice something it says in here, something that's, that's a, again, a beautiful picture and something to understand with us. The promise that God makes to David and to his son who is still yet to be born. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, verse 13. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. This is a promise that is given to David that Solomon will be like a son to God. And when he steps out of line, God will discipline as a father disciplines a son. It's a promise that he'll be a son, that he'll treat him as a son. You know, that promise is the same for us. John Chapter 1 tells us, as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you have received the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. And that is a promise. That is a promise that we can hold on to, that we are children of Almighty God. But just as the promise came that when he steps out of line... Chapter 12 of Hebrews tells us that he disciplines us too, as a loving father would discipline his children. There's not a, there's not a, a father or mother alive that truly loves their children that won't discipline their children when they misbehave. Because the, though our culture has gone so far away from that, that we want to be friends first, God, we need to be parents first and foremost always. And we show love by disciplining when there is wrong that is done. If not, the child will continue to grow and think it's okay and everything will continue on down. That's not love. And it's not love for God to say, oh, just, yeah, I know, just, yeah. No, he loves us too much to continue to let us down a path of sin without disciplining us. Now remember I told you about that word but earlier. It kind of, it, it's, it's one of those that you want to take notice. And I love the fact that after speaking of discipline, verse 15 starts with the word but. <laughs> but my loving kindness shall not depart from him. That word loving kindness there is also the same word that could be used for mercy. And we can never forget that either. Even in times of discipline in our lives, it doesn't mean that we've been disowned. It doesn't mean that we're now out of the family. It doesn't mean that the discipline will continue forever. 
his loving kindness endures forever. But his mercy shall never depart from us. He makes this amazing promise. And we know that ultimately the fact, it says your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. We know that that is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, David gets this back. Now imagine, and again, it doesn't tell us this, but I can only imagine that night as, da- as Nathan is re- re- receiving this word from the Lord, what do you think David was doing? I'm, I'm guessing, just because I, I'm thinking like me, I'm planning everything. I, didn't, I, I probably was up until 2, 3 in the morning. I'm drawing plans. I'm, got, you know, I'm if I, the, contacting architects. I mean, I'm moving forward. Man, Nathan said, God's with me. So he's fully excited that, man, we're going forward with this. We're going to build a temple for God. And then the next morning, he gets this news. And we looked at how we handle things when God says, whoa, we look at David and we see a beautiful picture of what we, how we, our reaction should be when God says no to us. Even again, if that thing sounds so right, sounds so good, and our, our motives are pure behind it, but God says no. Look what it says in verse 18 and following. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. That's huge. He didn't get mad at Nathan. He didn't say, what, what's the matter with you? You told me last night that it was okay. And now that he doesn't go off on Nathan, he doesn't, he doesn't shoot the messenger. He goes before the Lord. And again, no doubt, his heart full of questions. Full of, of, of a total lack of understanding because, Lord, did, did, he didn't like the plans, I'll change the plans. You know, did, whatever goes before the Lord. And we're not told how long he was before the Lord, but I would imagine it was a while as the Lord spoke to his heart and as how he now pours out his heart before the Lord. Notice it says, and he said, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? Looking at all that he has He's not upset now as he looks at all of this. He's like, man, God, who am I that you have blessed me with this, that you have brought me to this house? You've brought me this far, which is way farther than I deserve. Who am I? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. This was nothing for you. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant. You know know my heart, God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness and let your servant know. He's blown away by the promises of God. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. For there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
And what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do great, a great thing for you, an awesome thing for your land, before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever underline that. The world will continually try to tell you, and there are parts of the so-called church that says that, that the church has replaced Israel, that God is done with Israel. Not according to the word of God. Your own people forever. And you, O oh Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O oh Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant into his house, cons- confirm it forever and do as you have spoken. Have it your way, Lord. Your way. Whatever you desire. And again, no doubt blown away by the promise of the kingdom that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant. And I tie that statement, have made a revelation to your servant, back to verse 18, because he sat before the Lord. And he sat there long enough for the Lord to speak this to his heart, to make this revelation to his heart. And I'm challenged by that as I read that. How often do I get up and leave just as God was about ready to reveal something to me. That I have to run off on my busy schedule, that I have to go do this and go do that instead of staying before the Lord, continuing to seek him, allowing him to reveal more of himself and more of his desire for me. David did and he got this revelation the revelation you save is saying, I will build you a house, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer before you. Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. An amazing prayer from an amazing heart. And again, this is when God said no. He desired with all of his heart to build this temple, this house for God. And God says, no, not you, your son will do it. And it tells us that before David, before David died, he would accumulate all that was needed to build the house. He was the one who got everything that was needed so that his son could do the work. And again, I see in that an amazing heart and a challenge for us. When God says no, how do we react? When God says no to us and yes to somebody else with what we are asking for, how do we react? 
We see David's heart, and then we see what David did. He went out and got everything needed for that to be done. When we pray to be used in a specific ministry, and God says no to us, yet raises someone else up in that ministry, do we then submit under that ministry and serve and provide everything that we can to help that person succeed in the ministry that God's called them to do? If, if, if we want to be used to go out into the mission field, but that door gets closed for us, but opened for someone else, are we going to stay working here and supply needs for that missionary to be able to do that work? Let's take it out of the church and into everyday life in the, in the world. When you're praying for a promotion and somebody else gets it, do you do everything you can to make sure they're successful? You're praying to meet that certain someone, that perfect someone. And you, ladies, maybe I want to I get married and you're praying for that, yet somebody else is engaged. Are you going to do everything you can to make that wedding day for your friend that special day? A whole lot of application with that. A lot of times we pray and God says no to us, but even that very specific prayer that we're praying, he does that with someone else and what's our heart with that? I, I, I pray that it challenges each one of us in that, that we see again the heart of David. In, in, in that very beginning, the humility that is there, he sought the Lord and then he said, who am I, Lord? Who am I to be upset if you choose to use somebody else? Or to do this through somebody else. Who am I other than your servant? To do what it is that you've... Let me help them. Let me be an encouragement to them. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you again for your, your word, your very living and active word. And Lord, your word tells us that your word is alive and active, that it that it cuts, that it divides, that it does a surgical work in us. And Lord, I pray for each of us because we will all face these moments when you say woe or when you say no and even when you say go. Lord, that we need to continually be before you so that our reaction would be pleasing to you that when you say whoa, that we stop and we seek you as to what it is in us that needs to be changed. And when you say no, that we recognize that every breath we take is a gift from you and that we are your servant and that we would gladly come alongside those that you've called up and blessed in, in those ways. And Lord, when you say go, that we would pay special attention to the way that we go, the way that we walk, that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've placed on us. Lord Jesus, have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Enjoy the rest of your week.